This is music in the key of Geneva. I'm Kelly Walker. Music in the Key of Geneva is an ongoing project of the Geneva Historical Society. Museum curator John Marks has been researching all kinds of music and musicians around Geneva and presenting what he's found around town and online. Every year in early April, Geneva celebrates the legacy of Scott LaFaro. The jazz bassist grew up in Geneva, and the car crash that brought a tragic end to his short life happened just outside the city. For some perspective on Scott LaFaro and the enormous impact he had on music, I turned to an old friend, David Brent Johnson. David is the jazz director at WFIU Public Radio in Bloomington. He's the host of the nationally syndicated program Night Lights, and he's been a contributing writer to NPR. Kind of the ironic thing is that even though Scott LaFaro is now known as a a landmark bassist who really uh, changed the way that people thought about and played and listened to the bass, he didn't actually start playing the bass till he was 18 years old, which is really, you know, uh, kind of a an older age for somebody to suddenly take up an instrument who then turns into a virtuoso. Uh, he had actually played clarinet and saxophone in high school, but he was an extremely driven guy. He was really passionate about music. Everything that you ever read about him or hear about him from people who knew him, uh, they talk about how much he worked and practice uh, playing the bass and uh, how much time he spent doing that and how he just basically lived and breathed music. And so it's pretty amazing that he takes up this instrument at the age of 18 and in only seven years uh, is able to accomplish so much on it and leave behind such uh, vast wealth for a seven-year period of Uh, recorded work that really has uh, had an impact on how modern jazz bassists play the instrument and really played a significant role uh, as a member of the Bill Evans Trio in uh, giving people a whole new concept for the the jazz piano trio. So, you know, I can find any of a dozen musicians to explain in fine detail what it is that makes Scott special, what it was that he brought to the music. As somebody who makes, as somebody who exercises his passion for jazz by bringing it to fans and listeners, how would you describe what Scott did for the bass? What was it specifically that he did that was so different and changed the way people think about that instrument? He gave it a kind of intimacy that I don't think I have really heard in bass players that preceded him. Uh, Clearly, there were some amazing basses that came before Scott LaFaro. And really, you can go back to Jimmy Blanton and Duke Ellington's orchestra in the early 1940s as maybe the first bassist who really makes it a soloing kind of instrument, uh, who begins to bring it up front from just being a a, a foundation for, for rhythm. Uh, you've got great bassists in the 50s like Ray Brown and Oscar Pettiford and Paul Chambers uh, who do incredible things on the bass. But there is something about LaFaro's sound that is just so lyrical and I think gives such a sense of connection to the listener. And I think that's why it works so well with Bill Evans because Bill Evans' piano playing has those same qualities as well. A very lyrical quality. He was a great melodicist. I don't know that I – even today – and I, there are a lot of bassists I haven't heard, but I'm not sure I've ever heard a bassist who could be as melodic as Scott LaFaro, who really had a voice, a musical voice on the bass that was so distinct and and strong, yet lyrical. 
Uh, how he achieved that, I gather, is in part because he sacrificed some of his volume for being able to play more melodically. Uh, in fact, uh, somebody who saw him play with the Evans Trio said that you couldn't really hear him all that well in the back of the room because he was more focused on the melodicism of the bass. But yeah, just to to anybody who's listening to him, I think they immediately just feel this very warm, resonant sensibility uh, coming from his playing. Now, that maybe grew out of just the kind of love of music he had in his spirit. He was able to play in a variety of styles. You look at his recordings. I mean, he's on big band recordings. He's on West Coast jazz recordings. He's on avant-garde recordings, people like Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy. And then he's a part of the Bill Evans Trio, which is an extremely lyrical trio that had an appeal that transcended the normal jazz audience. Uh, but I think it was that really warm conversational quality that he had on the bass that that really made him stand out and continues to make the recordings that he was on stand out to people who hear them for the first time. You know, something that occurs to me, you and I, you know, share a background that we come to jazz secondary after growing up listening to rock and roll, after growing up listening to popular music. There are figures in popular music who cast a shadow disproportionate to the amount of time they spent making music because of the fact that they died young. It becomes part of the mystique. My own perception of Scott is that his untimely death has absolutely nothing to do with his influence. He didn't grow in esteem because... He played just a few years and worked with some amazing people. He truly was that transformative figure that 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 changes the way people think, not as you say, not only just about the instrument, but about the trio, about the music itself. Is that a sentiment that you agree with? Yes, I hadn't really thought about that uh, before, but I think that's an excellent point. Uh, Scott LaFaro is only 25 when he dies in an automobile accident in 1961, but he had already made enough recordings, and particularly the ones that he made with Bill Evans, two studio albums and, and the two concert albums that res, uh, result from the Village Vanguard recordings, that the impact was made. And I don't think that there's a mystique around him that there is around, say, maybe like a trumpeter like Freddie Webster, uh, where the recorded evidence is is much scanter. And I do think uh, that part of the mystique there is uh, wondering what Webster really sounded like because there aren't that many opportunities to hear him, whereas with LaFaro, you have plenty of opportunities to hear him. And his life wasn't particularly... Um, dramatic in a cliched, mythological jazz way. Um, he, he wasn't involved in substance abuse. In fact, he very actively tried to get Bill Evans to stop using heroin. It was a source of tension uh, between them uh, because LaFaro felt like Evans was potentially going to wreck his artistry. LaFaro was just so devoted to his music. And so I think there's enough substantial recorded evidence left behind. And, of course, there's the sense of, wow, what more might he have done uh, if he had lived a normal life? But there's also a sense of he did plenty enough as it was. And it's amazing uh, to me if there's a mystique there. It's that he accomplished so much uh, in such a relatively short stretch of time, as I said, picking up the instrument at the age of 18 and then uh, – 
dying seven years later, but somehow ending up as one of the most influential jazz bassists of the 20th century in that period is is pretty incredible. Uh, but I, I don't think that there is that kind of mythological aura of, as you said, the kind of the 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 trope of the the tragic premature death of the jazz man. You know, I think it's a little bit the same with Clifford Brown, actually, uh, another musician who also dies in an automobile accident at the age of 25 and who also had already uh, built up a pretty considerable recorded legacy um, to to the extent that there's plenty there to listen to and plenty that has influenced musicians uh, that followed in Brown's wake and in LaFaro's wake. And they were both... Uh, pretty devoted, passionate musicians who really didn't have some of the personal baggage that a lot of other musicians did from the time. And uh, so their stories, their uh, their figures on the jazz landscape aren't quite cast in that same kind of mythological uh, light that uh, others such as Charlie Parker and Fats Navarro uh, are. So if I were to put you on the spot, and I'm not, I'm not going to actually ask you to do this, but I am going to put you on the spot. And I were to send you out to your own stacks of wax right now and pull one LaFaro recording off the shelf that you want to, well, not even that you think is representative, that you that just gives you a great deal of personal joy. What recording immediately comes to mind? Uh, I would probably tend to say um, either Gloria Step or Jade Visions from the Sunday Village Vanguard recordings. Uh, those are a couple that I've listened to quite a And I think Jade Visions was actually written by Scott. Uh, but I just love what he's doing on Gloria's Step. Pretty much anything from the Village Vanguard recordings. My Romance is another track that comes to mind where I think he, he does a really nice uh, solo. But I would say – so I would say Gloria's Step or Jade Visions or My Romance. I would definitely be one of the Village Vanguard recordings. That's what I would pull off the shelf, either Waltz for Debbie or Sunday at the Village Vanguard. I'm glad that David mentioned those classic Bill Evans trio recordings. A couple of years ago, Gap Mangione was the headliner for the annual Scott LaFaro Day Celebration concert at the Smith Opera House in downtown Geneva. I had the opportunity to talk to him about his own memories of Scott LaFaro, which included those now legendary nights at the Village Vanguard. Well, Scott entered my life um, mostly from recordings, uh, at least at first. Uh, he was... Oh my gosh! From the very beginning, uh, with uh, with West Coast trios, uh, there's a wonderful album of of him with Victor Feldman, and uh, uh, another clip that I have video clip with Richie Kamuka and um, Frank Rossellino. Anyway, at a very young age, he was playing with the best musicians that they were. He, of course, being from this area, being from Geneva, and originally a saxophone player, I had heard of him uh, from from other musicians who were around at the time um, as, as a young and, and really accomplished uh, bass player. But then, of course, came the recordings he did with Bill Evans, and they were just miraculous. I, they were they were accomplishing some things that I frankly. Um, had a hard time 
believing that they could do <laughs> that that whole interaction among the the, the three in the trio um, with um, you know with, with piano bass and drums and 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 the almost equal parts in terms of who plays lead or whoever plays whatever it was certainly not the usual piano trio with bass and drums accompaniment and then um, and that again I, I, I I can only call it miraculous. Um, Autumn Lee's recording that they did in, I think it was 1959. Um, just wonderful. So that's how I came to know Scott. And, and again, f kind of from a distance, only through recordings. But then, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time coming up with the exact date, but they did a, a recording, a trio recording at the Village Vanguard. And I remember that we had gone to the Village Vanguard maybe be, mainly because I, we were friends with Lambert Hendricks and Ross who were there. And it, it was wonderful because Annie Ross, the place was terribly crowded, and she invited us to sit essentially on chairs immediately next to the bandstand. So they just had some chairs by when we sat. And then, of course, um, Bill Evans and Scott and Paul um, played what became their recordings. So that that's that was the first time I had heard him play live. And um, again, just being so admiringly, um, admiring of his playing and among their playing. Gap Mangione remembering bassist Scott LaFaro from a piece that originally aired on Finger Lakes Public Radio in 2015. Thanks to David Brent Johnson for lending his own expertise on LaFaro. He joined us from the studios of WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. Music in the Key of Geneva is a production of the Geneva Historical Society. Carrie Lippincott, Executive Director. John Marks is our Executive Producer. Music in the Key of Geneva is supported by a grant from the New York Council for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Kelly Walker. Thanks for listening.